0: All right, First John chapter two. Uh, have 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 any, have any of you really like dove into first, second, third John in the past? Read through yeah. it not really. It. So so no, <clears throat> not not like first, second, third John really dive into. I have I I, I have it. I mean I've read through them multiple times, but they're just kind of tagged on at the end, and they're really short and. Seems to be a lot about love and, you know, it's like, ah, there's a lot of other stuff in the Bible you could read that would really, you know, have some meat to it. It's amazing what happens uh, when you study the word and dive into it. You realize that whether a commentator says something about the gospel of John, that it's a it's a shallow enough pool, a child can play in it and a deep enough pool, an elephant can swim in it. Uh, and and that's, that's what I find with with, with the epistles as well, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Um, and just as a reminder, this is right at the tail end of John's life. He's, he's in his 90s, maybe 93, maybe 96. I mean, he's, 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 he's darn near 100 years old. Um, and as we said last week, the youngest disciple to be called to follow Jesus, probably the closest to Jesus, uh, one of the ones Jesus trusted most um, was is, is called the one the disciple Jesus loved, I and mean, they had a really really tight relationship. Saw all the the history of the first church, saw the the other ten uh, the apostles minus Judas live out their faith, suffer for their faith, die for their faith, um, and I think I think his brother James was the first martyr uh, of 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 the apostle he was the first one martyred for his faith and so uh, like he's seen it all um and uh when Domitian came to power as the emperor of Rome um, he tried to have John killed too so John was at death's door as far as being martyred and and boiling an oil just didn't work for some reason. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so that's when he was sequestered to the island of Patmos and received the revelation uh, and wrote that. So right at the tail end uh, of his life, he's, he's, he's let go from, um, from Patmos and he moves back to Ephesus to live out his final days. Uh, and he's drawing all these things to a conclusion. And, um, and we said last week how as an old man, the Christian community would, would would gather together for to hear from the Apostle John, you know, the old guy, the one that's been there through all this history, to hear what profound thing he would have to tell the church. And what was it that he told them? Do you remember? Yeah. Dear children, love one another. And these throngs of people would gather thinking they're going to hear this great, you know, uh, expository message and this little frail old man say little children love one another and then just walk out and uh, um and as you read the gospel of john and certainly we get into first john and and second third john um that command of love is 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 insanely intense and he's going to develop it a lot and keep coming back to it and if you think about it, it makes sense because he was known as the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, and and so I, I think his experience of Christ's love certainly colored um, and informed how he learned to live because you didn't start out as a loving disciple. Right. He started out as a son of thunder. Um that um, was he and his brother. He, Jesus said, I think I'm gonna call you guys Sons of Thunder, mm-hmm. right? If you've seen the chosen, you know how that happened. They, um, <laughs> uh, so he didn't start out as as the disciple Jesus loved. He started out as pretty boisterous and, you know, probably a pretty rough individual. But I think experiencing the love of Christ totally transformed him and certainly colored everything that he had to say after that. So um, I, I think as we go through this, you'll see, and 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 today a little bit and then in the weeks to come, I, I want you to start listening for how often John gives the command to love. Uh, to love God, but to really love other people. Uh, and his model is Christ. Uh, and, uh, and and he, he will come back to it over and over and over again. So, uh, be watching for that. Uh, 1 John chapter 2. Um, he got done in chapter one with um, verse nine. If we confess our sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Um, and it seems as though at the end of that part of the letter, it, it feels almost. And the danger was, if you sin, confess it, you're forgiven. Wink, wink, it's all good. And, and it has a bit of levity to it, like a lightness to it. Uh, and I think we all grab onto that. I mean, that, this is an important verse for us. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just for forgiveness, purify us from all righteous. So, I mean, I don't really want to sin all the time. Sometimes I do. But if I do, I'll just confess it, I'll be forgiven. And it, there seems to be a little bit of um, leniency. Towards it, and certainly in the Christian church today, that is certainly the case. Um, and there's a, the, it's great that the pendulum has swung from law to grace. That's fantastic. But if we're not careful, though, grace is freely given. It certainly isn't cheap, and 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 we teeter on making it cheap. Uh, and and so. So John comes back in this next, and, and remember, he didn't write chapter one, chapter two. He's just writing a letter. And so when he gets to this point in the letter, again, what are his first three words in verse in one there? My dear children. And it, it's he, he's not being demeaning. It's like, oh, you little kid. Like, he's old. Uh, and so everybody feels like his child, you know. Um, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And so he's, there's two things that he's doing here. He wants to be careful that we understand, don't be too lenient about sin, but don't be too severe about it either. The danger is if if we approach sin with too much leniency, it's as if it's not that important. God's going to forgive, confess that God forgives us, it's no big deal. Which really makes grace cheap. Although, if we create, if we treat sin too severely, then uh, we live in fear of of, of our own failure, uh, and God becomes this cosmic judge who is out to nail us every time we screw up. And so, uh, John wants to wants to walk this line in saying it's serious. But there's a solution. So uh, we would be wise to hear what he's saying. Let's not be too lenient about sin, but let's not treat it too severely either. It has been treated severely, so we don't have to be the ones to suffer, but let's not be lenient about it either. So that's why he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. End of discussion. He said, Take this seriously. Don't sin. Um, if you go to uh, Romans 3.8 and Romans 6.1, the book of Romans, of course, not written by John, written by Paul, but uh, we get a feel for this idea of sin and its severity that we ought not treat it too leniently. Uh, Romans 3.8 eight. Um, why not say we have as, as, as we are being slanderously reported as sane and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. He said, why, why not just say that? Like just, just do bad. So God will make something good come of it. He says, those who say that their condemnation is deserved there's all that, let's not, don't, don't treat sin too lightly here. Now look at, look at Romans um, 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. What, what he has just said is where, where where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So where there's great sin, there's great grace. So why not just sin a whole bunch so we get a whole bunch of grace? And he says, by no means. If you were to use the vernacular, he'd say, well, hell no. It's ridiculous. And, and, so, and so this is what John is saying. He's saying, I, I write this so that you will not sin. Uh, and remember, this was the second purpose of his writing. He gave us four purposes, when, 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 and we talked about that last week. First uh, John, John 1, 4. I write this so that you'll have fellowship with us and your joy will be complete. The second purpose is I write this, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, so you don't sin. Uh, and so he's like, look, let's be serious about sin. It isn't just one of those things where you screw up, you confess it, God forgives you, kind of winks at you, patch you on the back, and, you know, gives you a Twinkie and says, hey, all right. Like, this is a big deal, so don't sin. Now, um, let me make one more point. When he says we talk about sin, he's talking about these singular acts where you just screw up. He's not talking. Uh, um, um, not talking about a habitual lifestyle. And so he's saying, when you mess up, like you know, I know you love the Lord, and, and I know you're trying, but you're going to mess up. When like don't, but when that happens, he's not talking to those who have a habitual lifestyle of sin. Who say, it is what it is, I don't care. Either I don't care about sin or or you know, maybe God changes his mind. I'm not gonna call my lifestyle sin. He's not talking about that. He's saying, when you when you mess up, don't, like don't, but if you do, and when you do, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous one. So don't sin, but if you do. We have one uh, who speaks to the Father in our defense. Now, that's how my old NIV says it. Do any of your translations say it differently? Advocate. Have an advocate. <clears throat> okay? That is a very good word to be used for one who speaks to the Father in our defense. That word advocate, Jesus is our advocate. Don't you remember that? The Greek word is paraclete. Okay? Okay? The Greek word is paraclete, and it means a lawyer, okay? If you think in a law case, when you stand there before the judge who has the right to convict you or sentence you, you have an advocate on your side, which is your lawyer, right? So he's saying, when you do sin, we have an advocate who speaks to the judge on our behalf. That advocate, the Greek word is paraclete, and his job, the paraclete's job, is to continually represent us before the judge. That's what he does. Continually represent us before the judge. The interesting thing is that there are two entities in Scripture that that bear this title paraclete. And, And they're two of the three expressions of God. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, And Jesus is called the paraclete. The Holy Spirit plays a dual role of this advocacy. He is our advocate. um, And the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit being our um, intercessory. Um, But he is also the paraclete for Jesus to the world. The Holy Spirit is the advocate for Jesus to the world. If you go to John 16, verses 7 and 8... The Holy Spirit's role, one of the Holy Spirit's roles, not just to be our advocate, uh, but also uh, John 16, verses 7 and 8. Uh, Where's, here it is. The Bible says, but I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here it is. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to be the, 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 the paraclete for Christ to the world that doesn't know Christ. To convict the world of sin and of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. Okay? He is also our advocate. But aside from the Holy Spirit being our advocate or paraclete, Jesus himself is our paraclete to God, the judge. And we need need Jesus to be our advocate before the Father. Because the Father sits on the throne as the judge of sin. He is a just God. And he is a righteous God. And sin has to be dealt with justly and righteously other than Jesus taking care of that on the cross he continues to be our advocate before the father uh, go in your bibles to revelation 12:10 again written by john revelation 12:10 this is what's happening right now and when i heard a loud voice in heaven say then i heard a loud voice in heaven say Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of the brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So right now there is an accuser in heaven accusing every one of us before the father. And that's what he does. He does. He accuses, accuses, accuses. Now, here's what, here's the truth of the matter. He doesn't have to make up stuff to accuse us. All he has to do is tell the truth. Now, I don't know if the devil's capable of telling the truth, uh, but he doesn't have to make up stuff. And so, and so that's like he is the accuser brother, brother and 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 day and night. And so we have an advocate, Jesus himself. And we're going to talk about what his advocacy looks like in just a minute. But suffice it to say now that he is our paraclete. He is our lawyer. He's our advocate. Day and night, as the devil makes charges against us, Jesus is saying, okay, hold on now. This is played out beautifully in Zechariah 3. If you can find that in your Old Testament, it's one of the very last books of the Old Testament Right before uh, the uh, Italian prophet Malachi. (laughs) Uh, uh, Malachi, sorry, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord showed me Joshua the high priest. Now this isn't Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. This isn't Moses. This is the high priest Joshua uh, uh, a long time after uh, the famous Joshua. Joshua. So the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, it talks about the angel of the Lord. It's talking about Jesus. So this is the high priest, the most holy of holy men in Israel, the high priest, standing before before Christ, and Satan standing at his right side to what? To accuse him. And so this is the picture of the high priest standing before Christ, um, with the devil there just accusing him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, re- the, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Watch this. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? He said, yeah, this guy was probably headed for the fires of hell. Left to himself, he's, he's in a fire. He's like a burning stick that I plucked out of it and saved him. That's what he says about the high priest. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. That word filthy clothes means clothes covered in his own refuse. He's full of shit. He's covered in his own stuff. Um, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. He said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head, should put a clean tur- turban on his head, and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. That's the role of the paraclete. Though we stand there before, before God himself, even covered in our own stuff, there's a paraclete standing there as our representative. If you and I had to stand before God as our own representative, we don't get plucked out of the fire. You understand? And so John is saying, don't sin. But if you do, there's a paraclete who is pleading your case before the judge right now. Now, understand that when you uh, read John's other words in John 10 10 that was said, like, look, uh, on Sunday, was, I've come that you might have life to the full. It's not the BMW house on a hill, big retirement life is to be completely free in this world to live eternally while we live in this world completely clean before God with no guilt and no shame. Complete liberation. We have one who speaks to to God the Father, our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Uh, Now, verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. D- d- does anybody have a different, in your translations, word than atoning sacrifice? Yeah. Is it Yeah. What's yours, Richard? Well, my, my whole, this whole chapter infers <laughs> that we need an advocate for Jesus also. Because it, it I mean, it clearly says that... Um, if, if you, uh, it's, this is, this is absolutely crazy. I, anyone who says he's a Christian should live as Christ did. Yeah. And if he doesn't, he is a liar. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's yeah. All good. Yeah, it's all good. Um, so yeah, uh, propitiation. Yeah. That's the, that's the big, you know, theological word. He is our Propitiation. He is, um, he is the one who is who stands in our stead, substitutionary atonement. The, a life had to be given to be atoned. He is our substitution. He is our our, our, our substitution. So we don't have to do that. Um, or vicarious atonement. That's like, he has taken our place. He's our propitiation. He's our stand-in. Um, and it wasn't a one-time act. It's a perpetual propitiation. Like he, he is forever this for us. Though died one time on the cross, buried rose, though one time act, but it's a forever fulfillment for all sin um, and, and, and not uh, given for us who believe and offered to the world. So it doesn't mean that, that when it says, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world, that's not universalism. It doesn't mean that he's, he's offered himself and offered for, and given forgiveness to the whole world, whether they asked whether they come to him or not. No, The offers to the whole world, those who have received him have, have, have taken advantage of that, um, uh, of, of that propitiation. We've taken advantage of it. I love the fact that he is our lawyer, He's our advocate. Standing before the judge. Now, in a court of law, a lawyer, if, if, if I have a defense attorney, does the defense attorney have to prove my innocence? No. What does the defense attorney have to do? Give the doubt. A doubt. Yeah, just a hint of doubt. Just a hint of doubt, right? Reasonable doubt. reasonable doubt. Like maybe they weren't so bad. Maybe it didn't go down like you said. Maybe it wasn't as severe as what you're claiming that it was. Right? I mean, that's all you got to do. A defense attorney will either offer excuses, reasons why, um, a game plan where it wasn't. I mean, if you go back to the O.J. trial, if it doesn't fit, you must have quit. Right? Mm-hmm. Just a one little thing. Like it. I love the fact that uh, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus offers um, no excuse. And there's no claim of innocence. And it really is as bad um, as it is said to be. The only defense attorney in the world that says, Judge, you are exactly right. It's exactly as bad as what you say it is. And he did it all. That's... Like he doesn't pull punches. He doesn't... I was reading... It, way back in the day, there was a little tiny book called The One-Minute Manager. Do you ever remember that book, The One-Minute Manager? Oh, yeah. One of the things... but his author last week. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that The One-Minute Manager said in that book was mm-hmm. when you're leading people and they really screw up, the, 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 the great thing to do as a manager... Is to explain that they screwed up, the mistake they made, put your hand on their shoulders, you explain to so, them so they feel it and make it very, very plain, it is as bad as what you say it is. So they feel the weight of what they've done. Because then you can say, and this is how we're gonna work together and fix it. Because they can't feel the liberation. Of the grace of a benevolent boss, till they feel the weight of the failure, and they said, rather than bosses try to make people feel okay, like it's not that bad, we'll work it out. No, no, let them feel the pain first, and and th- that's exactly what what Jesus does before God. Oh no, it's it's that bad. Um, and and, and his defense is not our innocence. His defense is not our excuse. His defense of us is his life. It is exactly as bad as what you say it is, Father. And as their advocate, I'm advocating for them based on my blood. Because they are as bad as what you say they are. And he would tell us your defense... Is not in your excuses and not in your goodness and not in your righteousness and not in your defense. Is in the blood of Jesus who loves you. And I love the fact that the propitiation that is Christ was not forced on Jesus. The father didn't say, look, son, I know this is going to be horrible, but you have to. And I'm commanding you to do this. It wasn't forced on him. Nor was it a bribe. It's not that. It's not that Jesus said, "Okay, okay, Father, here's the deal. Let's let's. uh, What can we do here? Okay, I'll tell you what. Like it wasn't forced on Jesus, and it wasn't a bribe of the Father. The propitiation that was the life of Christ was done out of joint love of the Father and Son towards us. That He loved us so much that Jesus said, "Please allow me." And the father said, son, please go. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. And what John is trying to get across to us is don't sin because of this love that, ex- that the father and the son have for you. How could you? How could you? But if you Do. You have an advocate that doesn't advocate your innocence or your excuse. That advocates his blood that was shed for you. And that's going on 24-7 for you, for me, for us. All of this that John writes and teaches comes from this bedrock of love. That the Father has for us. That the Father has for the Son. That the Son has for the Father. That the Son has for us. And that we should reflect back to the Father. Are good? That's verse 2. So then John is going to develop now three tests for the Christian. Three tests to know... If someone is really part of the family. Okay? Now, he's an old man. And he's boiling stuff down. He said, I'm going to give you three tests. One of those tests is verses 3, 4, 5, 6. And it's the moral test of obedience. Okay? The moral test of obedience. The second test is the social test of love. And it's verses 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. And then he's going to take this little break. And then he's going to give us the third test, which is the doctrinal test of belief, verses 18 through 27. He said, you will be able to pinpoint those who are of the fold because it will be clear. The moral test of obedience, the social test of love, uh, and the, um, the doctrinal test of belief. And, and so that's what we're going to walk into right now. So the first one he said, we're going to, he's going to throw out here is this moral test of obedience. And so he says in verse three, we know that we have come to know him. And that word know him is experience, this intimate experience of it. It's not knowledge. It's not just knowledge. It's just not intellectual stuff. We know that we have an intimate knowledge of him. Because remember, the bedrock is love. Uh, And and so we know that we have an intimate experience of him if we what? If we obey his commands. This is the moral test of obedience. The man who says, I know him. In other words, I have an intimate experience with him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth isn't in him. But But if anyone obeys his word... God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. What he's saying is this, that an experience of God will be seen in the living out in the flesh. Like the, 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 our words will be proved by our, our, our way of life. And we can't get around it. He says, if you have an experience of him, your walk will look profoundly different than those who don't. And if it doesn't look different, you need to consider, do you really have an intimate relationship with him? This is what he's saying. Um, And those who claim to live in him must walk as Jesus did. I mean, think about it. If, if, If we say we live in him, how can the walk be different than him? Right, and so he's saying, "Look, it's real easy to tell if someone's part. If someone really has a an intimate relationship with Christ, they're going to be pretty. There's going to be a lot of similarities between them. They're going to look like him. They're going to walk like him. Okay." (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Not really. uh, and so then he says there's this social test of love <clears throat> now remember he's experienced the love of christ so that's where he starts you say you love him you know him you're going to look like him and that love is going to flesh itself out in relationships with other people So he says in verse seven, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command. This is a, I mean, part of this, you think, oh, oh, sweetie, he's old, (laughs) (laughs) but but, uh, he's actually pretty sharp. He knows what he's doing, but it just sounds funny. I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. (laughs) It's like, wait, is it old or is it new? (laughs) Uh, its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Let me just go back to verse seven. I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. He's saying this command to love. He's going to say this this whole command is the love command to love people. He's saying it is not new at all. Go to John thirteen thirty four, the Gospel of John chapter thirteen verse thirty four. Um, this is Jesus talking a new command. I give you love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this. All men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, he said, you got this from the very beginning with Jesus. And this actually goes back to the old Testament because in Leviticus, it says, love your neighbors yourself. So this ain't nothing new. So you've heard this from the beginning. First John three 11, this next chapter we're going to read, um, next week. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So he's like, look, this isn't a new command. You've heard this from the very beginning. This has been God's standard from day one. Love one another. It's an old. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. So the newness of the old command is the elevation of how Christ loved. <laughs> the old command... Do unto others what you want done unto you. Jesus' example of love is to lay down your life and die. So it's an old command fleshed out in a new way. It's Jesus washing his disciples' feet in the upper room before the Last Supper. It's Jesus hanging out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. It's the old command of love fleshed out in a brand new way. Like he takes it to the nth degree. And he said, that's the new part of it. (coughs) You've heard it said, you know, love your friends, hate your enemies. I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And and when you pray for those who persecute you, what Jesus means is pray that God blesses them so much they won't have time to even think about you. Don't pray that they change. Just pray that God blesses them so much. Uh, and, and, and so he said, th- this, and he says, I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is what? Known? The truth of this new command, the elevation of love, how we're supposed to love each other, is known, is studied, is discerned, is what? Is seen in whom? In him. In him first. <clears throat> so, so what you've seen in Christ, this is the new elevation of how to love people. And you love people like Jesus loved you. Now, previous to this, this was the injunction of the husband to love his wife. Right? Wives, respect your husband, husbands, love your life like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Now, according to John, the expectation of every Christian to love every other Christian the way Jesus loved us. Like this is an elevation of love we've not seen before. And honestly, if we could love people like this, We wouldn't be fighting with each other. And just maybe if we love people like this, the world out there who doesn't know this type of love would want to come in. Because the darkness is passing, the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Here's how I understand this. Now, he's using pretty strong words, hates his brother. That, I mean, Those are pretty strong words. But here's what I know. I think we often misjudge others because we have ill will towards them. We don't have ill will towards them because we misjudge them. Let's understand this. We misjudge other people because we have already have ill will towards them. If I had no ill will towards anybody, I wouldn't misjudge anyone. Do you understand? So the reason... That I misjudge people is because I already have, have harbored something in my heart against them. And because I've harbored something in my heart against them, I have I, I, I misjudge them. And what he is saying here is, don't have that in here that makes you misjudge them out there. Because when that's the case, you're not walking in the light of the love of Christ. Right? That's what I'm saying. Like you, you, initially you look at this thing, that's ah, pretty simple. But you get into it. And he's, he's calling for some, pretty, for some pretty mature living. And then he fleshes it out here in this next section. He's going to talk about children and uh, fathers and young men. And so his order is a little bit different because the chronology should go children, young men, and fathers. Okay, so let's understand what he's saying here. He's talking about children, young men, and fathers. Okay, he's not talking about literal children and literal young men and literal old men. He's talking about spiritually. This is the progression. Little children of faith, young men vigorous of faith, and old seasoned people of faith. Men and women. Okay, so what he's saying is, and this is where he takes a break in these three tests Of those who are part of the fold. He says, I write this to you, or I write to you, dear children, those substituted for young in the faith, brand new in the faith, or just those who haven't grown up in the faith, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Let me just read the whole section and we'll go back. Verse 13, I write to you fathers because you have known him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you dear children because you have known the father. I write to you fathers because you have known him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he says, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. Okay? And so he addresses each of the three groups two different times and says very similar things. So what he's doing is saying, I'm going to give you these three tests to know who's in, who's really a, 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 a disciple of Christ. And then I'm going to give you three markers to identify your spiritual growth. And so the first one he deals with is his children, verse 12 and verse, uh, the end of verse 13. I write to you children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you to your children because you have known the Father. What he's saying there is this is directed at those who come to know Christ, who experience the freedom and liberation from their sin, who are joyfully related to the Father and experience forgiveness. And they're like, this is great. You know what it's like when you first accept Jesus? Like I don't I don't have to be religious. I can like He's forgiven me and it's just, it's new, it's fresh. Oh, this is, I love grace. This is fantastic. I love the, this mercy thing. Keep that one coming. I can't imagine being forgiven. I don't have to like jump through hoops. I, like, I'm writing to you because, because you know the father, you know, his love for you. You've been forgiven kind of his name. Like this is good. So then let's go to young men, 13 and 14. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. So you've moved from the excitement and the liberation of mercy and grace to now you're strong because the word of God lives in you. You have done time in the word with the Holy Spirit. You know it. It lives in you and you're not fighting with God's sovereignty of your life anymore. You're not fighting anymore, trying to be obedient. You have overcome the evil one, not by your strength, but you've been victorious over sin by the word of God, and you've learned how to beat temptation. And and it's not that battle all the time anymore. You've done the battle. You've been overwhelmed with mercy and grace and you've dove into the word. And so now when you face temptation, you combat that with the word of God, which is exactly what Jesus did in the temptation. Right? Man shall not live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, and so the spiritual progression is, I love mercy and grace, and I love forgiveness. That's awesome. To growing as young men who are strong, who have learned to overcome the evil one, who have the word of God in their heart, that when they face temptation, the, 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 the response to temptation isn't to give in. The response to temptation is, the word of God says, and I'm not going to fall anymore. I've overcome the evil one. I'm living a victorious life. And then he gets to the father's. He says, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who's from the beginning, because you have known him who's from the beginning. He, he's saying, You fathers, you have a deep communion with the eternal God. There, 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 there's a, there's a you, you, you matured men and women, you have a deep communion with the God who has been there from the beginning. his sovereignty, his plan. His presence, you know him. And you know he's been there from the beginning. You can look back. You've got longevity in your life and your faith where you can look back and say, God, again and again and again and again and again and again. And I'm living in this life of, I just, I just, I look back at his faithfulness. He's always been there. I don't doubt it anymore. I don't struggle with it anymore. Like I've got this. Now you can imagine John, 90 plus years old, who's walk with you can imagine what he's talking about. Right? And so he does a great job of giving us a matrix for ourselves. So he's not talking about our age chronologically, he's talking about our spiritual age. And it's a great discipline to go through this passage and say, okay, what am I? Am I a child still? Have I grown to be a vibrant youth? Or am I living that life of celebration of who God is? And this, the struggle is, is I just can't wait to get to heaven and live this thing out, man. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? And wherever you are, you know what your next step is. And this comes from this old man, John, who has lived it, who is, who is like... You know I, I've know, I know the God who was there from the beginning. He was my best friend. And, and, and my next step is eternity. It's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. And so then he, before he gets to that third test, he gets back to verse 15 now. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he, is, he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of the Father lives forever. Do not love the world or anything in the world. That reminds me of Matthew 6.33. What's Matthew 6.33 say? You know this verse. Yeah, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all this other stuff to take care of itself. Like love, kingdom, and God primarily. Like like, like king, God and kingdom must be preeminent, not just important. And he says, don't love the world or anything in the world. Why? Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not, is not in The person who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus is the one who said, you can't serve two, two masters. You'll love one and hate the other, or love the other and hate the one. Uh, and everybody's going to serve somebody. And so I, I'm sure John heard that a lot, and this is his way of rephrasing it. Everything in the world. The cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Do, do your Bible say that differently? Have the desires verse? of the flesh, desires of the eye, and pride. Okay. Okay. I have the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Yeah, and, and that's that's the, that's the more classic one. Uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I love the boastful pride of life thing. Because um, th- there, are, there are two people, two groups of people that are the most boastful. Um, young men trying to prove themselves. And old men trying to prove who they were. <laughs> when I was coaching uh, RYF football. There was a, a young man, and he didn't start for us. He wanted to, he wanted to be the guy. He just wasn't very good. Um, but he tried his hardest, man. And we're in this playoff game. And I, I, I wanted to make sure that all my boys got all kinds of time, as much as they could, and put them in positions to succeed. And this kid wanted so badly to be a running back, and he, was, he just was not a good running back at all. And we're playing this playoff game in Dos Palos. Um, and this kid could run one play at fullback. Uh, and so we were on about the five yard line and it was a first down and five going into the end zone. And so I, I put this kid in and we run this one. We were the, the bend play and he picks up a yard. I'm like, I'm gonna tell my quarterback, run again. And he runs it again. and picks up two yards, run again. He runs it again, picks up one more yard. And it's fourth and one on the goal line. And I'm like, I'm going to get this kid a touchdown. I'm, I'm, we're committed. I'm like, I pulled my team together. I'm like, look, guys, here's the deal. We got one yard. We got to punch this in, man. This is like, let's do this for each other. We got to get the, like, linemen take care of business. I told this kid, you get the ball to hold on and just go. And so, sure enough, boom, touchdown, you know. In the playoff game, our second playoff game, like, he was so excited. I talked to his mom afterwards. And I, she said, thank you so much. I said, I love him. He deserves it. He's worked his tail off all year long. I said, here's what's going to happen. He's going to be an old, fat, bald man telling the story when he scored a of touchdown, a playoff game when he was in fourth grade. You know, it's just, it's the boastful pride of life. Man, I'll tell you when I was young, you know, I mean, I get it. I get it. Um, but, but this is what he's saying. Like everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust lies life, the boastful pride of life. These were the same temptations that Eve faced in the garden. You go back to Genesis 3, 6. The lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good food. That's fleshly. Um, The lust of the eyes. Said her eyes beheld what she couldn't have. And she wanted coveted it. The boastful pride of life. She said, oh, I can get more wisdom doing it that way. I can look even better than what I look right now. Yeah, fine. I'll elevate myself. It's the same thing. This is what led David into sin. When he was on the roof looking at Bathsheba, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride. of I need one more woman. You could argue it's the same three that the devil tempted Jesus with. The, the lust of the flesh, you want some more bread? Look at all these kingdoms. Go ahead and get it all. Uh, and, and, and some would say that these are the three things that we're tempted with every time. The lust of the flesh. There's just stuff of this world that I yearn for. The lust of the eyes is covetousness. You take away covetousness and most sin goes away. And the boastful pride of life, trying to prove that I'm impressive. And that's one reason we talked about that so much in our men's study. I got nothing to prove and no one to impress. The boastful pride of life, I got none of that anymore. Uh, and so he's saying, you know, be, be careful how you're living there. Now let me wrap this up. I realize I got five minutes. Um, and then he finally gets back to this third test the doctrinal test of belief. Dear children, there he is again with that word. This is the last hour. And as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how you know it's the last hour. There is no doubt that the first church believed in the imminent return of Christ. He was coming in any moment. Um, And that still needs to be the hallmark of the church. Uh, this expectation that oh man I hope it's today. Get ready. Um, there's an old song from '72, I think. Maybe not that old. '74 by Sweet Comfort Band. Uh, during the whole Jesus movement, if you if you don't know Sweet Comfort Band, you need to go back and. If you know the singer Brian Duncan, he was a lead singer for the Sweet Comfort Band. Um, one of the first Christian rock bands. Uh, and they have a song called "Get ready," and it 's all about you better get ready right now because you get one shot at it, and if he comes back and you haven 't like you 're done it 's it's an it's a incredible song. Inc- one of the best bass players in the world he died a few years back. Uh, this real short, big round guy, incredible bass player, played a fretless bass he just he was just amazing anyway um, uh, so they lived with this anticipation any time. And even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. He said, look, there, I'm not worried about the one antichrist that, that I wrote about in Revelation. I'm talking about that there are many antichrists. Many people who have led others astray. Many people have come into your fold, and they weren't solid on the doctrine of Christ and the second coming, and so they were led astray. And those who walked out, he's saying, they were never really a part of us, and we know they weren't a part of us because they left. One of the things we have to realize is that endurance is the hallmark of the saved. Like we can just continue. Uh, verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. He said, you have an anointing. Now, the anointing that it talks about is the Holy Spirit. And so the anointing comes from the Holy Spirit and the anointing is the Holy Spirit. And he said, you who are in Christ have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will teach you and walk you into all truth. And that relationship with the Holy Spirit is the one who tells you what lies sound like so you're not led astray doctrinally. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. When he says the liar is the one who denies Jesus is the Christ, what he's talking about is every other religion on the planet. Because every other religion denies that Jesus is the Christ if we understand what they mean by the Christ, this hypostatic union, fully God and fully fully man, fully human. Christianity is the only one that says, Jesus, born of a woman, complete humanity, yet is God, was with God in the beginning, was God, fully divine. Every other religion, he, he appeared to be human, but he wasn't. He was a man who became God, Mormonism. But he, you know, and 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 so this. If any other religion denies this, what we call the hypostatic union—fully God, fully man—they are of the Antichrist. So don't be fooled. As nice as some of us, sincere as some of them may seem, don't be fooled. No one denies the. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. Let me just finish up with this. See that you so skip verse 24 and 25 and go down to verse 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So that's the purpose because there are people trying to lead you astray. And, and in verse 24 and 25 and verse 27, he's going to tell us how not to be led astray. Okay. So the first step to not being led astray is verse 24. See that What you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised, even eternal life. So he's saying, make sure that what you heard from the beginning stays in you. Don't abandon it. What he's talking about is this apostolic teaching of the gospel. We're sinners separated by God because of sin. Jesus died on the cross for our salvation. He rose from the grave for eternal life. We have to accept him as our Savior. That's the apostolic, the conservative apostolic understanding of the gospel. He said, make sure that what you've heard in the beginning stays with you. Don't diverge from that. There's going to come a lot of teachings that say well you know sacrificial atonement seems really really like 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 cosmic um uh, uh, uh child abuse and it really didn't have to be the death and you know and and all this crazy like like hell isn't a real place it's just like maybe just eternal separation you don't ever really realize it maybe it's not that bad or everybody goes to heaven uh, universalism you know uh, uh crazy stuff Make sure that what you've heard from the beginning, which is this apostolic teaching of grace, the gospel of Christ, stays in you. Here's the thing. If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. It's real simple. And he's saying this because this new movement called Gnosticism was was swirling around. That Jesus, they denied Jesus was the Christ. They said he just appeared to be human, but he really wasn't. That's why he would. Wa- they would say he would walk at the seashore and not leave footprints, because he just appeared to be human. You saying there's all kinds of new stuff coming down a pipe. Don't believe it. That's the first way that you're not led astray. The second way, verse 27, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it taught you remain in him. There's a Holy spirit in you. That is the anointing of God in you. Lean into that. Rely on that. Rely on the Holy spirit, his direction, his teaching, his counsel, The things that the Holy Spirit is, he's our comforter, our counselor, our guide, our helper, our teacher, and our intercessor. Biblically, that's who the Holy Spirit is. Our counselor, our comforter, our guide, our our helper, our teacher, and our intercessor. He said, you have that anointing. Lean into those things. You don't need all these other people and systems to be your counselor, your your comforter, your your, your helper, your teacher. You need the Holy Spirit. And when you lean into the Holy Spirit and keep the, the 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 apostolic gospel in place, you will not be led astray. And the last words of verse twenty-seven, "remain in Him," is more of a command than a tagline. It's, it's, you remain in Him. Then he wraps up in verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine. And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, you may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. If you, uh, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. What do you say? He says, at the end of verse 27, remain in him. At the beginning of 28, continue in him. Why? Why? Why continue in him? So that when he appears, because they're expecting him to come back. And when he appears, you may be what? Confident and unashamed. Because it's like he's saying, look, he's coming back and you're going to face him. And do you want to have to face them as one of those with their tail between your legs, thinking, oh shh, I wish." I or do you want to have this confidence and unashamed faith, like I knew you were coming, and and, and I'm living. I mean, like I know I'm a sinner, but I'm forgiven, and and I'm, I'm I didn't stay a child; I was growing. Do you understand what I'm saying? He says, so continue in him. So when he shows up, you got some confidence. You're not ashamed. You're not ashamed of the last 20 years. You're not ashamed of the last 40 years of your faith. Like you can say, hey, man, it's good to see you. (laughs) And if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Here's the deal. Religious experience is valid only as it results in obedience and morality. Religious experience is valid only as it results in obedience and this change of lifestyle, which is one of the tests he told us about, right? Any religious experience that doesn't result in obedience and this change of lifestyle is a false experience. That's what John's saying. So... That's 1st John chapter 2. There's a lot there in there? <laughs> that old man had still stuff to say. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I wish you would just would have wrote down, Dear children, love one another. And just close the book. Maybe he used up all his words right in this, so that's all he had left to say. I don't know. So, so he-